This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. People's reserves are very low, um, I think, and, and, and the modelling that we've done shows that the effect of the pandemic um, is going to have a very long tail on it for the people that have gone under. You know, they're, they're not, we're going to see this, you know, um, we have a long-term uh, increase in, in, in need for care for a significant subgroup of people, adding to the burden. We were already turning away two out of three people from the public mental health system in Victoria even before the pandemic. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, the best digital agency you could ever have. The team from Neon Treehouse are going from strength to strength, having moved to a new Adelaide City head office and have had some terrific recent write-ups in both B&T and Mumbrella. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Professor Patrick McGorry AO. Pat is the Executive Director at Origin. Origin is a leading youth mental health organisation in Australia. Patrick is a Professor of Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne and founding editor of the journal Early Intervention in Psychiatry. He led the advocacy which resulted in the establishment by the Australian Government in 2005 of the National Youth Mental Health Foundation, which in 2006 became Headspace and he remains a founding board member of that organisation. There is so much more I could say about Pat, but you can Google him in your own time. I first met Pat when he was kind enough to appear on the Mental Wealth series I produced earlier in the year. I wrote to Pat and told him about my concerns regarding the impacts of COVID-19 and persistent lockdowns on the health and well-being of our youth and the rest of us too. He wrote back a few minutes later saying he'd be happy to come on the podcast with me and uh, just a few nights later we were recording on Zoom together. Pat is the most generous, time-poor person I know, and his passion and willingness to spend a weeknight talking mental health with me is testament to his generosity and kind spirit. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, and what is striking to me is that for all we do know about the limits of our mental health system and distress that we're facing as a community due to COVID-19, there is so much we don't know about the short, medium, and long-term effects to come. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Pat as much as I did. So I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Pat McGorry. Welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, thanks for having me back. Oh, it's just a pleasure. Since your last um, sterling performance on mental wealth, you've been a people's favourite and we're very glad to have you back. So wonderful privilege to have you, especially at a time like this when I think youth mental health is under more strain than ever before. I thought maybe a good a place to start would be just to discuss a little bit about the state of our population's mental health um, in 2021, where we are today, and just how it's changed since early 2020. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, actually. So it's like a, a moving landscape, a shifting landscape for sure. Um, I suppose let's start at the top level, the whole population. I mean, 
the concept of public morale is relevant here, and, and you know you could call it well-being, but it's really morale. You know, when, when you're facing a like a continuing and serious crisis situation like this, which has turned everything upside down, morale is very important. It's like being in a war. You know, in, in, in wartime, you know, um, public morale is vital. Um, we probably just saw that in Afghanistan, sadly, in the last few days. And you know, when morale collapses, uh, uh, there are very serious consequences. And 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 so. The, the, pub, the leadership of the country have been trying to maintain that, you know, in, in, in sometimes doing well, sometimes not so well, but that's been their, their goal, I'm sure, you know. Uh, and and um, But sadly, with, you know, six lockdowns here in Victoria now and, and um, just no, no real clear end in sight, which I'll come back to, you know, um, the public morale is clearly suffering. People are exhausted. They, are they losing hope uh, about how, how their lives can actually return to a, you know, a, a, a type of life that, that's um, that's worth living almost, you know, that, that where, where you get to do the things that you sustain you, you know, on a day-to-day basis, like, you know, you know being with your fam- extended family, seeing your friends, you know, finding meaning in life, you know, exercising, you know, socialising, and, and, and maybe even having uh, contributing to society. Uh, so I suppose... All of those things have been stripped away and we've been in more in survival mode because we've been so preoccupied with saving lives from COVID, which is obviously something we've got to do for a, certainly for a bit longer anyway. Um, but that, So that's the first level. Then at the next level, because of all of that and because of you know, a whole range of other factors, um, the, 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 the tide of mental ill health has also risen. You know, in, and we predicted this with our modelling, probably when we spoke last time, we predicted a 30% rise. And that's what we're seeing, especially in young people. The figures now it's hard it's hard to measure the rising tide because it it, it can't actually get into services because yep. they're all full and and they're they're so underdone um, in the first place. But the one place you can get some sort of read on it is through emergency department presentations and to some extent MBS because the GPs are a little bit more accessible. And there we've seen one age group particularly affected, and that's young people, teenagers and young adults who for obvious reasons have borne the main brunt of the disruptive and negative effects of the pandemic uh, with their effects on, on their vocational and educational pathways and, you know, that the fact that they need their peer group more than anybody and, and all sorts of other things are happening to them, um, both also economic effects too. And <clears throat> so we're seeing a very significant rise in emergency department presentations with suicidal behaviour and, and uh, deliberate self-harm um, and eating disorders and also other sort of anxiety and depressive disorders in particular, you know, that's that's what we're seeing. And young women seem to be, you know, I would say a bit overrepresented. Um, and they're certainly overrepresented in the rising suicide statistics. Um, now, some of our colleagues in other parts of mental health have been patting themselves on the, on the, on the back um, uh, for the, the fact that the suicide rate, which is probably one of the highest in the world already, hasn't hasn't gone up yet across the lifespan. That that's 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 very worrying complacency, and and we're now seeing a signal in young women where we've seen a rise of from one one suicide in the first seven months of 2020 in that age group, teenage girls, to eight already this year in Victoria. So now the coroner doesn't want to over overinterpret that. He, he doesn't want to jump to conclusions, which I can understand. But if you if you put that figure alongside the rising tide of suicidal behaviour and it's flooding into emergency departments, yeah, I think it's a real finding. And, and uh, so it's a signal. 
So, so um, we, we're seeing this uh, shadow pandemic, we call it, um, of, of mental ill health, which we predicted. And, and what, are the, what sort of response are we seeing? Well, we're seeing governments moving heaven and earth to, to stem the tide of COVID, and, and quite rightly, you know, doing everything they can. And, you know, uh, responding to the mental health pandemic uh, um, as business as usual. So they, they sort of acknowledge it and they put a bit of money to helplines, and, and, and which is obviously needed and, and welcome. They put some money to Headspace, which, which is still sitting in PHNs, uh, largely speaking. So, but there's no sense of urgency or execution. That's the problem, you know. And I think, Pat, you, you've uncovered like multiple elements there that, that I want to dive into. Maybe one of the first or second things that would be worth discussing is sort of what you describe as a shadow pandemic. So when we talk about the pandemic being the first thing that to worry about, then there's the uncertainty that comes with not knowing when lockdown is going to end as a sort of yeah. corollary to that. And then yeah. you've got all these broken social connections that used to give us all of this life force and energy and kind of sense of well-being and insulation really um, in a way from the real world. So I just wanted to, to, to start with like, what do you think the impact is of all the uncertainty of sort of being in this semi-perpetual state of lockdown and having no real idea of when we're going to come out and go back in? And does, does that kind of, how, how big is the effect of that? And does that diminish over time? I think that's a cumulative sort of effect, you know, and um, people use the trauma analogy, but it's not, it's more complicated than just trauma. You know, it's, it's, there was an experiment that was done in the 1970s, you know, a kind of a classic, you know, experimental psychology experiment done by a guy called Martin Seligman, who, who end, then ended up becoming the guru of positive psychology. You know, he wrote um, Learned Optimism and books like that. But his first starting point was a negative one. He did experiments on, on dogs, actually, and they were yoked up to a, a harness with, with electricity attached to the harness and gave them repeated electric shocks, and they couldn't move or control it, and, and they developed a, like a, an animal model of, of depression. So, and, and he used the term learned helplessness to describe this horrific sort of experiment, which is something that ethically you'd have to wonder whether it was, a, you know, um, uh, uh, an acceptable thing to have done in the first place. But... What it does, what it did illustrate is that, you know, depression and, and a sense of, of um, sort of um, hopelessness and helplessness can be induced by just repeated, um, uh, I suppose, paralysis or, or you can't actually control your environment. You know, that sort of um, inability to, 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 to have any control over what's happening. That's a very destructive psychological insult to people. And if it happens repeatedly like it's happening now and almost continuously, it's, it's, it's going to grind everybody down, or certainly a subset, a large subset. And, and that's what's happening, I think, that's something along those lines. And it, it's interesting because, I mean, even amongst myself and my friends, I'm in my late 30s, um, most of my friends are married, have kids and, um, you know, strong family support and, and everything going well for them, jobs, um, lucky to be gainfully employed. But even with them, I'm sensing a real sense of mounting anxiety, negativity, uh, lack, lack of hope about the future, not not quite things that I would put into the basket of becoming severely mentally unwell, but even, you know, that worry, falling into that worried well category uh, more than, you know, I've ever seen before. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't say that they're mentally ill or they don't, or they're, 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 they need professional help. They're not quite at that threshold. But, but nevertheless, if that's happening... Um, there's another concept: the mass psychology. If the if the if, if the mass psychology of the population is affected in that way, you know, 
you know, if everyone's 5% worse or, or, or 10% worse, if you add it up across millions of people, this adds up to a lot of burden. And, and uh, so it's the population attributable fraction that they, they use that term in, in, in epidemiological research. And so, so it's like if everyone's 10% depressed, that, that's probably um, as powerful as, say, 5% of the population being very severely depressed or more, more so, in fact. So, so how, do you, how you put it all together in a basket, it, it's, it's a, a major deterioration, at least in well-being for the population and morale. Um, with a, with another big chunk of people, maybe thirty percent increase in need for care as well, and and the, and the problem, like I was alluding to before, was despite the prime minister and um, you know the Victorian premier absolutely being sincere about the need to kind of do something about mental health, it's 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 still not being done. It's not having any effect because the system is falling apart anyway, or full, yeah, uh, crumbling. Premier said it was broken even before the pandemic. Mm. It's, it's disintegrating now because people are leaving and a lot of their workers have gone to work in vaccination, uh, out of mental health into vaccination centres and, and the like. We've lost staff and the rest of them are exhausted and on, and on their knees. So so the cavalry has to be found and, and, and sent over the hill to, to rescue the, the system and, and to open up the system for help for people again. Yeah, and I think what I worry about most when I talk to my friends and, and colleagues is the impact on children and young people's development when schools close and mm. that sort of reverting to that constant online schooling environment um, and not being able to attend sports clubs and playgrounds. What's the kind of impact of that on, on a child's um, short and longer-term well-being? Well, we, we've never seen anything like this before. We've seen it in individual cases where kids' lives get Sort of put on hold, or or um, or, or, or um, what's the word, undermined, or, or disturbed by, well, by mental illness itself, but by by let's say social circumstances like domestic violence in the home, or or some or some other reason why they can't go to school, perhaps, or that we've seen it in individuals before, but this is happening to whole cohorts of kids, and we don't know what the long term effect of that will, would be. It's it's going to produce a kind of a developmental delay, though, in these kids. Uh, and I would say the young adults too, the university students, it's going to set them back in life. Now, whether they can catch up or not, it will be, you know, a moot point. We can, see, we, can see, we can see if they will. Many of them will because they're resilient, but, but many of them won't. So, so I think there's going to be a very significant generational effect here, like a cohort effect going forward, and this generation might be penalised compared to the ones going before and the ones going after. But we've been seeing that for a while in youth mental health, even before the pandemic. This generation of young people is struggling a lot more than the previous one and the one before it, before that. So that's why things like Headspace had to be developed because, you know, it was obvious there was a public health problem even before the pandemic, and now it's been put on steroids by the effects of the pandemic. And isn't isn't it amazing that we just had a Victorian um, Mental Health Royal Commission? Um, we had all these findings, and then we find ourselves in this parlous state where we know that the course of action that we're embarking on with these um, perennial lockdowns that seem to last forever are really deteriorating mental health. It's kind of like what is the um, what is the thinking there? It's just sort of it seems to be very inconsistent. The thinking about how to get out of it, you mean, or? Well, just to have all these insights come out about how our system is broken, how it's not coping, how we need to redesign it and a whole bunch of things need to change and then to kind of be taking a pretty, you know, as you said, a funding services a little bit piecemeal kind of response to the challenges of lockdown. I just feel as though 
in the narrative, when we talk about um, how things are going as a state, we always talk about case numbers, we always talk about deaths, but we never talk about um, suicides really. And we, when we talk about suicides, we neglect what you were saying before, um, which is the the rise in acuity of mental health presentations and the frequency um, of, of presentations across the population. That's sort, of, that's sort of never mentioned in any of the press conferences. No, no, well, what, I had a meeting with a deputy premier on Tuesday about all this and, and uh, one of the things I suggested to him was that we, we get a mental health person up there next to the Premier alongside Brett Sutton uh, to, to give that sort of daily or weekly report on, on how the mental health uh, of, of Victoria is actually actually going with, with, with numbers and, and actually reports and experiences. So because, um, as you say, it's, it's a laissez-faire attitude. It's an idea that uh, response to the shadow pandemic is, is you know, well, you know, we can't change this quickly. It'll, it'll take years, you know, as in post-Royal Commission type thinking. And, and certainly many of the changes will take years, you know, but that doesn't mean you, that you're off the hook for, for responding right now to a massive crisis. And, and there are many, many things that could be done right now if there was the money and the, the political will to find the workforce, you know, and that's what I've been talking to them about. Yeah, and Pat, Pat, it's interesting. I mean, from my perspective, I've seen a lot of debate um, around whether suicide numbers have risen from 2020 to 2021. I think I saw a BMJ article recently that said that it's it's been relatively steady. But I just think the focus on that completely misses the point for most people. You know, we've we've got um, a huge number of presentations at EDs for mental health um, issues. We've, we've we're seeing Lifeline and a whole bunch of these other services being completely overwhelmed. Counselors, mental health social workers are completely booked up. Um, psychologists are completely booked up. Is this a case of sort of measuring the wrong things at the moment? Yeah. Well, I think, and I've, we've seen this from the National Mental Health Commission and and and, uh, and the suicide prevention sort of uh, world, where where and and probably um, politicians as well. That you know, basically relieved and and. Um, and assuming that think they're doing a good job on mental health because the suicide numbers have not gone up. But it's like saying, well, the death rate from cancer hasn't gone up, but we've got about twice as many people with cancer and we're not treating them. Yeah. 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 It's rough. It's um, yeah, def- definitely seems to be a confused debate that really isn't focused on the right things. Yeah. Um, and, and, so, and unfortunately some of the people in the mental health sector have colluded with that, with that kind of complacency. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um. When we do have these brief periods where we open up again and we decide that it's no more lockdown or it goes to stage three or whatever, how much of a kind of bounce back do we get in well-being? And is this something that takes a long time to recover? Or do we is two weeks enough for us to feel great again? Or oh look, I think people don't bounce back as well as they did the, um, maybe the first time. Um, people's reserves are very low, um, I think. And 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 the modeling that we've done shows that the effect of the pandemic um, is going to have a very long tail on it for the people that have gone under. You know, they're, they're not, we're going to see this, you know, um, I think we have a long-term uh, increase in, in, in need for care for a significant subgroup of people adding to the burden. We were already turning away two out of three people from the public mental health system in Victoria even before the pandemic. We might be end up to turning away three out of four unless something happens quickly um, because, um you know, the Royal Commission investments are starting to hit. We had a budget meeting today without, within uh, with the health department about the new money that's flowing. It's 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 definitely welcome, but it's it's modest so far, um, the, the first year. 
Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's welcome. But, um, you know, I think that um, we're going to need to keep on increasing this over several years. And we're not going to reach a point for years and, and um, by which we're, not, we're turning away nobody you know, who needs care. You know? um, now, if that was cancer, if that was COVID, it wouldn't be acceptable to have such a long time frame on this. Absolutely not. When we're talking about what are the sort of the biggest impact points of the pandemic and the shadow pandemic, is it the sort of social disconnection and the, the lack of contact with family and friends that you think is, is the biggest um, trigger or the, the biggest sort of point of most impact for people? Well, it's, it's probably not one size fits all. Some people are, are sort of more introverted and, they, and they're not quite so needy for, you know, um, that, that sort of uh, connection, at least not with a large Maybe with selected people they are, but um, so but but certainly overall, you know that that's what I hear people complaining about the most. You know, I, I actually just went to a funeral this afternoon, which was only allowed you know very tiny number of people to attend, and you know everyone was talking about that, that, that the fact that you know we're being cut off from people, the people that we need to be with and 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 uh, and be comforted by at a, at a time when you know when they need it most, and that's that's an extreme example, but it's just. The lack of ability to sustain yourself through, you know, the, the intimacy and, and the support that you get from other people, um, and you can't get that over Zoom or or, um, or phone calls in the same way, I don't think. And, and yeah. even the phenomenon of touch, you know, hugging people and and, and touching people, and and the, the most destructive thing I've heard from from some of the medical experts in recent times is that even when we go back to post COVID or COVID normal, whatever they call it. Um, that somehow we have to continue with the social distancing. You know? That's not just not a viable way to live. You know? <laughs> no, it's and not. I think we've just got to accept the risks that go with, you know, uh, endemic COVID um, uh, and, and uh, to preserve our overall quality of life. So, so at the moment, that you know, that the, 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 the beating COVID is dominating everything. And, that, <clears throat> and I, I would say that's justified in a short-term way until the vaccinations um, reach the appropriate level. But beyond that, um, it's not just those views that need to be taken into account. It, it, it's actually a, a broader range of health and social views, and that's where that's where the wisdom of the political leaders needs to be at a, a very high level to be able to make those judgment calls. It should be the elected representatives that say that, not you know people sitting in you know academic institutions. Pat, what do you think of a, a world where I mean, just as an alternative, people who are vaccinated. Um, can go to work and have enjoy certain rights and not necessarily be locked down. Would a gradual move into something like that be uh, some sort of way out of this complete lockdown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think once you get to 80-90% vaccination, but once everyone's who, who want who 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 um, uh, wants to be vaccinated is, and I, I actually think you ought to have incentives to maximise that figure too, along the lines of what you said, and disincentives too that. You know, I'm sorry. You know, um, you, you're not going to be able to go to work in in a, in, a, in a workplace and put other people at risk um, if you're not vaccinated. If you choose not to be vaccinated, well, that's a choice with consequences. Um, because you know, this this idea. Other the other way to think is that the individual liberties trump the collective good. And, and that- 
This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today. That's not the way we think. That's not the way anyone we can afford to think. I mean, some of the more libertarian people might think that way, but that's not a view that I, I certainly hold. I, and I mean, that's why we have fluoridation of the water supply. That's why we have, you know, vaccinations for kids for measles and, and mumps and, and polio and those sorts of things. That people accept that. They have accepted that. So why it's not acceptable for COVID uh, for some people, I don't know. And I, I think you shouldn't be able to go to work in most workplaces unless unless you, unless you, um, I mean, no one's forcing you to holding you down and putting the injection in, uh, in your arm. But 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 there's got to be sanctions if you, if you if you don't if you don't actually go along with it. Then we'll get to nine percent, hopefully, maybe more. And and um, and that means that, that we can open up. And, and the people that have absolutely refused, well, why should the the rest of the societies? suffer and, and be almost undermined in a very serious way to preserve their individual rights. And Pat, what, what do you make of the the huge public communica- public health communications mess that was, you know, one group coming out and saying AZ is safe, everyone should go do it, and then another group saying we're not so sure about that, you should probably wait for Pfizer, and then the government oh. coming in and adding their own layer. It, it's just been like a bit of a, um, bit of a sitcom for, from my perspective. Yeah, look, you know, honestly, um, although it's not specifically a mental health issue, <clears throat> um, just the logic of that. I mean, I am a medical researcher as well, and, and I know that w- when you license a new drug, you've got to be able to show a clinical impo- clinically important benefit of the drug. And on the other hand, if you're going to restrict a drug, you've got to show that the increased risk that the, that the, the drug uh, poses is clinically important. You don't you don't scare people if the if the if the risk is is, is trivial. And in this case, the risk increased risk in, in younger people from the AstraZeneca vaccine compared to older people is absolutely trivial. Absolutely trivial. Yeah. An extra one case of this clotting disorder in in a hundred thousand people compared in the younger group compared to the older group. So it was about three in in the in the in the um, in the younger group and two in the in the elder in the older group from memory. And that's trivial. It's not clinically important. And, and not only that, but the risk of dying from that condition was one in a million. It wasn't one in 100,000. It was one in a million. And, and many people have pointed out that, that there are many more risky activities that people indulge in every day that, that are, are, are significantly more dangerous that people don't think about for a second. So the irresponsibility of, of those medical experts that, that, that basically um, put out that opinion and, and uh Perhaps a target you could say, well, they just gave a narrow piece of advice, which was not not processed properly. But at first, although the prime minister did did work it out after a while, um, um, but then I think that chief medical officer in, in Queensland who came out that day and, and made those comments um, about the AstraZeneca that that was a that was a mistake in my opinion. I mean, all respect to her, she's done a wonderful job in other respects, and but I think that was a mistake and. So the mixed messaging about it was incredibly damaging and delayed delayed a lot of. I mean, we'd invested in AstraZeneca as, as the mainstay of our vaccine rollout, and suddenly you're excluding it from, you know, I don't know what percentage, probably at least half of the population. 
Yeah, I believe it's got to a point where there's about 11% of Australians in recent polls who are not willing to take any vaccine. And there's about a 23 to 25% group who are reluctant um, and unsure about whether they're going to get vaccinated anytime in the near future, which is a sort of huge, huge concern and a bit of a duff of the messaging yeah. overall. Well, that, 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 that aligns your point about the need to kind of introduce some sanctions and, and, and not, not just carrots, but a few sticks as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the carrot and stick approach is essential. I'm curious just a bit about whether there's any evidence, um, medical, scientific, social evidence around the, the benefits or the utility of um, both curfew and secondarily closure of uh, playgrounds? Yeah, look, someone else asked me that question uh, earlier today, and I honestly don't know the answer to that because I don't know what the risks associated with, you know, the playgrounds on the one hand and, and uh, the curfews on the curfew on the other would actually is, you know, there must be some reason why they've decided to do that. And I think Brett Sutton and the Premier pretty logical people they wouldn't they wouldn't impose that i don't think for if there wasn't a, uh, uh, some basis for it and maybe i read somewhere that maybe it was, it was just partly a symbolic basis that just try to get to shake people out of there at least with curfew to, to, to get people to understand this is serious you know because obviously people are not not not, not adhering to the restrictions as well as they did last year from at least anecdotally that that seems to be the case and you can understand why because people are just fed up yeah it's been um almost um, a year and a half of no freedom um it's been a very difficult period um but i guess that doesn't excuse things that happened around the corner from my house here the engagement party uh notably printed you weren't weren't invited uh i was i was gladly not invited um (laughs) but i i did get sent the the video very early on in the piece before it went to the media and i was just so ashamed and embarrassed to have seen that and you know but 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 i guess like that's a specific example but i guess you will see more and more um protest where it's allowed um to this kind of thing the longer it goes on because i think people even very reasonable people i feel are are approaching some kind of breaking point where they're they're, it's just been too long that they can't maintain themselves whether it's going for a haircut um go to the gym going to see friends and family like these are all such important tenets of life that we kind of just don't really consider to be um you know well like like right now we consider how important they are because we don't have them but they're just normal parts of living life right yeah, well, look, you know, I've got to say as a first comment, I, I, I still support the, the, what the government's doing in this, in this respect. You know, you have to, you know, and, and, and you know, I think uh, Daniel's been uh, an excellent leader in this space. But but there, there is a reality here which probably did may have helped to prompt the curfew idea because um, yeah, it, it's just human nature now. It's not, it's not um, even people that, that, that sort of accept the curfew, uh, sorry, accept the lockdowns, um, they can't help themselves. Almost, they're, they're probably not protesting. They're, they're, in some ways, they're probably just over it and 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 just getting a bit slack. You know, it, it may not be such an ideological. Obviously, there's a subgroup that are fully ideological and, mm. and don't don't accept it at all. And and um, that's probably the libertarian sort of extreme right sort of people. But mm. but um, but you obviously don't agree with them at all. But 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 I, I do I do think. <clears throat> There's got to be a point fairly soon, you know, once the vaccinations get up to, to you know, a, a sort of a, a plateauing, you know, when we're seeing we, we, we're probably getting close to as far as we can get. Um, 
um, that we we, ab- we abandon this elimination strategy at that point, you know, and, and we actually open up um, because we have to be, I think we have to live with it because yep. it, because the rest of the world is not going to be able to el- eliminate it. That's, that's absolutely clear. And they've, they've made that decision. They, they're going to work alongside it in the high vaccination areas. And that means if we don't do the same when we reach the vaccination point, we will never be able to open up our borders. Yeah, we'll become a hermit nation like Bhutan, but in Australia. Yeah, we'll be a hermit nation. And uh, I've got a son in London and, and 40% of Australians have got relatives overseas, maybe more. And we want to see our families. And, and, and uh, so I think at that point, if they try to persist with it at, at that point, I think that's when governments will really start to see some 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 massive sort of protests. Yeah. So I think from what I'm gathering and hearing from you, it's a, it's a little bit more about learning to live with acceptable levels of COVID in the community. Yeah. Um, from what I understand, the Delta strain is not a strain that is um, going to be able to be completely suppressed or eliminated. It's uh, a lot more contagious. And yeah. so it's just something that we need to move towards um, being able to live to some semblance of normality, obviously very safely and in compliance with all state rules and laws. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, to continue to live would be a, a fantastic thing at this point. Yeah, look, and I, I think the Prime Minister's tried to hold the line on that in the National mm. Cabinet. Probably most of the premiers are on board with that. There's one or two that have gone gone a bit off piste, you know, um, and, and 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 maybe they, there are other, there are other more political considerations influencing those premiers. I wouldn't know, but 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 I, I think that we've got to support the the the, the balance that balanced approach. Which I, mean, I think Dan Andrews has said, you know, once we get to eighty percent, we won't be locking down to protect the people that choose not to. Uh, so. So that's that I, I'm in I'm in full alignment with uh, that that logic actually. And Pat, how can we support our young people? Um, you know, that could be our children, they could be young friends, um, anyone who's sort of living in a moment in time like this without maybe the natural um, amount of resilience as an older person might have. What what kind of advice can we give to younger people beyond reaching out for help? Yeah, well, look, I think there's a lot we can do, really, because um, the the young people, um, you know, as we talked about before, growing up, moving from being a child to being an adult, I'm not talking about the adolescents and young adults mainly here, it, they need scaffolding around them. There's, and, and the scaffolding are the parents and, and the peer group and the teachers and, and, you know, whoever else, you know, other adults in their lives. So, and those adults, being adults, even if they're feeling a bit, ordinary or a bit exhausted or, or even struggling, you know, in a more serious way themselves, somehow they've got to present, you know, I think a stable environment for, for those kids, you know, and an optimistic um, an optimistic stance on the whole thing, even if they don't actually feel it themselves at the time. So, you know, make it, uh, fake it till you make it sort of thing, you know. Um, that's probably what the, what the adults should be doing if they can. And obviously understanding that they may not be able to do that um, at times because they're, no, no one's perfect, and, and you, you, you can't really say a mental health professional can't say to, to, to people you've got to be strong at all costs because because that's that that feeds into the whole idea. If you if you actually are struggling, then you, you then you're weak, and that's actually not the case. You know, so so it's a tricky one that actually to be honest. But there are lots of sources of help. You know, the Headspace website, the Origin website, have got lots of materials for families and for and for young people themselves. And I'm sure there are similar resources for children, younger children as well that um, other other colleagues might have um, prepared and that might be available too. So, so I think, um, yeah, look, 
it, it, it will pass. You know, it, 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 I think, you know, it's hard to see the way out of it at the moment, but that's something that I'd appeal to the political leaders to try, try to map that path, try to foreshadow and paint that path mm. in a much more coherent way for, for the people, you know, rather than just reacting on a day-to-day basis with the bad numbers. Just yeah. keep that, that focus on how we're going to emerge from this and, 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 sh- and show empathy to the public, you know, um, which they, I'm sure they feel, but communicating the, that empathic response and, 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 and also projecting a sense of competence themselves, you know. So it, it's not probably great for everyone to be criticising the, the political leaders all the time. You know, um, their job's hard enough and, and they're probably trying to do their best and, and um, you know, maybe cut them a bit of slack and, 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 um, and, and, and ask them to work together more effectively. And, you know, they're human beings too and they've got a very tough gig at the moment. Very tough gig, very tough gig. But I think one thing that you touched on there that does sort of sit with me a little bit is the idea of painting a picture of hope and a potential sort of end game destination. And I don't think we're there yet, but when I've seen other countries, how they've done it, they've sort of said, okay, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pump vaccinations very hard for a few months. And then at this date, we're opening up. And we're just going to get Boris did that, didn't he, Mike? Yeah. And, and you know, Boris is, a, is an interesting character, but um, mm. that's what he did, and, and that's what they're doing. I talked to my son the other day, and mm. there's a lot of cases. There's a lot of um, still a lot of morbidity associated with COVID, but the country is actually returning more to normal, and, and they did a very good job at getting those vaccination rates up quickly. Yeah, then I think they're an interesting example because their numbers are still very high, but I, I understand the mortality rate is dropping um, right. and has dropped a fair bit. And they have just decided. I mean, I watched the English Premier League soccer religiously, and yeah. to watch full stadiums of packed cheering fans and all over regional um, <laughs> the UK uh, was just tremendous. No masks, having a great time. You've never seen people happier to be in a um, sporting environment. It was amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Bhutan, I think, did you? Or, yeah, um, Bhutan. So, so Bhutan's got the the, um, the gross happiness index as well as the gross uh, domestic product. Um, and so the, I reckon the gross happiness index has gone up a fair bit as a result of the things you just mentioned. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like, like I actually do think that one of the protective factors for Australians during a time like this has been the Olympics and other yeah. sports. Um, yeah, totally. I couldn't survive without watching sport. Yeah, I mean, I know for me that there's this sort of regular regimen of the, the footy season, the Olympics, um, just anything. I mean, having sport being played elsewhere, anything that can give you some sense of escape from the current um, state has been really phenomenal some people are reading more science fiction than ever um it's just i guess horses for courses a little bit yeah yeah i think some of those people writing science fiction of um you know fit into those conspiracy theories as well a bit too so oh <laughs> maybe a bit of overlap there yeah the conspiracy theories is a whole nother story the, the QAnon and the uh the 5g conspiracies they're all they're all completely above my pay grade so i don't yeah, touch them I'm, too, I'm afraid <laughs> okay so we, we've covered a lot i mean so a way forward might be to start to talk about learning to live with COVID at acceptable levels in the community. Um, in terms of taking the pressure off or, or doing more to help our young people with mental health challenges, is it about encouraging our young people, especially children, to sort of be very open about how they're feeling and their uncertainty and sort of some of the challenges they're facing too? Yeah, yeah. They've definitely got to be able to, to ventilate uh, and express their feelings and with young children you might have to do it indirectly by getting them to draw 
pictures or, or, or paint pictures or, or, or find some other way of expressing themselves because they might not be, you know, like sitting down in a consulting room talking about it. It's not the way, that's not the way it works with, with young kids. And, and even adolescents and young adults, you, there's, there's more indirect ways of, of, of kind of helping people to sort of recognise their feelings and then, and then be able to verbalise them or express them. Maybe you don't always have to verbalise it, but just express and also receive, you know, a resonance and, and, uh, and support from the, the people around, around them uh, uh, as well. And then uh, not just expressing, but then probably working on coping skills. One of the, one of the things that we see in, in young, young women especially is a lot of delib- deliberate self-harm and self-cutting, which is a response to extreme emotional pain and distress. And it's it's not it's a coping strategy. I mean, it, it sort of works, you know, temporarily, but it's very obviously destructive, and and, and uh, you know leads to scarring and pain, and, and you know, and uh, so it's not a, not the most ideal way to cope with emotional pain. So learning other methods to to, to to dissipate the emotional pain and to cope with it. That's why our online digital program that we've developed um, at Origin, Mario Alvarez and his team. Um, it's being rolled out across Victoria and hopefully soon in Queensland and, and ACT. Um, <clears throat> but um, but that that is a way uh, of learning from other people how they've coped with the same problem, you know, and, and in, a, in a support group environment. It's like a social network with lots of coping strategies basically project, uh, presented on, online and, and you can you can even design your own repertoire and, and work out what works for you. So, so I think... Young people can definitely draw on those sort of resources and, and probably little kids too uh, could be helped a, a bit better. Yeah, Pat, you know, I, I actually was pretty convinced that I was an introvert before this pandemic started and then I realised that I am somebody who just needs to speak with people and connect with people as much as possible. And um, I'm curious what your suggestions would be to help people bring some of those things back into their lives that are missing. But for me, um, I certainly make an effort to make a phone call each day to someone different or one or two phone calls a day to someone, you know, someone from work, someone from my um, friendship circle and just check in, touch base and just talk like humans used to. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the things that's probably gone missing with Zooms and, and, uh, and, and uh, I suppose, you know, interaction in, in real time, real life. This small talk, you know, and, and they're just, you know, just uh, talking about just things that, uh, well, whatever comes up, you know, that those um, in the workplace, the, the, the classic water cooler conversations or corridor yep. conversations that you, you used to have and you don't have anymore, you know. So um, absolutely all that inf- informal glue that, that sort of keeps us all together. Yeah, and I think that that, um, that water cooler talk is a real stress mediator. Um, I, I feel that it really does, you know, that there's something to banter. First of all, it's great fun. Second of all, um, it really does reduce the stress levels and it allows you to kind of feel a bit more um, loose and comfortable at tackling those harder work tasks that we're all inundated with. Yeah, one of the things that one of the people at our workplace has uh, set up about um, probably at the beginning of the pandemic, it, 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 she, um, she, she called, her, her name is Anne, Angela and, and, and uh uh, her nickname is Shepo, and she started the Shepo Chronicles. So every every day, there's a there's a kind of a like a like a little blog from her on the email. You know, maybe a few paragraphs of just she's got a fantastic sense of humor and a beautiful writer, and she and she's kind of out of left field as well. So this stuff comes in, and then everyone responds to it. It, it inspires people, it engages people, and they have banter online. Way right? so so or through email and. 
But that's that's a, 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 an incredible contribution that she's made. I think this woman, and, and uh, yeah, she's a, a special person. And so those sorts of strategies probably would help any um, group of colleagues. I think, but you need you need a someone with a with the, the creativity and talent to do it. Probably to, to kick it off. You know? We, uh, we ran a Spark Olympics at work the other week where everyone had a chance to win a gold medal by performing a feat of great uh, skill or endurance and everyone would post up a video and it was judged at the end of the day um, all, all the way through the Olympics and that was fun. And I, I think you've got to be creative, like you said, at a time like this and, you know, start to um, – I can say personally, I've never been involved in more WhatsApp or Teams groups uh, where there's sort of just that water cooler translation where you can't do it actually in person has just all gone onto the smartphone, which which actually creates another problem, Pat, which is, um, you know, our reliance on smartphones, screens and social media <laughs> even more so because there's nothing else to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah that's very uh, heartening to hear too. Yeah, so... Um, so, look, for me, um, personally, when it hits about uh, curfew time at 9pm, I'm well in bed and watching a Netflix show and relaxing. What, what is your wind-down routine and um, are you in bed pre-9pm? Oh, no, I probably go to bed pretty late, actually, because I, 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 I probably don't finish Zooms until about, you know, 7, 8, 9 o'clock sometimes because cause I'm, you know, we're doing research uh, across the globe, so we've got early morning ones and late, late evening ones and, and um, so... It's pretty full on, actually. That um, from a, just from a work point of view um, with, with, the, with the pandemic, but so probably between about nine and midnight, I'd probably you know maybe have dinner, have, have a couple of glasses of wine, and, and watch some Netflix as well, or, or what, um, whatever else is on. There's a great show at the moment called uh, A Very Special Secret Service, or no, A Very Secret Service, and it's it's a French it's a French spoof, you know, set in the 1960s, like a French version of combination of get smart and maybe awesome powers and it's just unbelievably funny so been watching that the last few nights that's been great fantastic i have to give that a shot um pat thank you so much for joining me i think i think we've covered a lot of ground tonight um so i just want to thank you for coming on the show if people want to connect with you or learn more about your work where can they find you oh thanks mike well Probably um, my email, um, they can email me if they want a, um, specific sort of questions or, or feedback. Um, it's pat, P-A-T dot McGorry, M-C-G-O-R-R-Y at origin, O-R-Y-G-E-N dot org dot A-U. Um, but if they want more general information about our work, um, the origin website, O-R-Y-G-E-N dot org dot A-U. Um, and and, and uh, Headspace, obviously, is still very connected with Headspace. Headspace.org.au, um, and there's lots of great information on those websites as well. Thanks so much, Pat. Stick around for one sec. We'll have a quick debrief. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.
This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th Anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today.